This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Rainmaker, a person such as a partner in a law firm who brings in new business. Some lawyers and law firms just seem to have a knack for business development and marketing, some secret sauce that helps them succeed. That often involves elements of hard work and discipline, but often there are coaches, consultants, or in-house experts who leverage strategies, techniques, and experience to drive a Rainmaker's success. We're fortunate to have with us two specialists in law firm business development and communications, and they're going to talk to us about marketing and growing a practice today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Always good to be with you, Chris. We've got a special episode today, focusing less on technical, regulatory, and enforcement topics, and more on a couple of skills and the daily demands on practitioners related to business development. For some, business development is a career-defining feat. Participating in social and professional efforts to win new opportunities and retain existing clients, or thinking outside the billable hour for ways to increase their eminence in an industry. For others, business development is an unfortunate chore that takes them away from the detailed analysis and legal research they may love. Thankfully, we have two esteemed guests today in the business development and marketing space with a bent towards the legal profession. Deborah Farone of Farone Advisors and Stephanie Marone of Stephanie Marone Consulting. Kurt, talk to us a little bit about Deborah's background. Happy to, and we're very fortunate to have two experts with us today to talk about this important topic. In fact, Deborah wrote the book on law firm business development, literally. Her book, Best Practices in Law Firm Business Development and Marketing, published by PLI, is a critically acclaimed, best selling resource book for lawyers and law firms that Deborah wrote based on more than 60 interviews she conducted with leading law firm leaders and marketers, general counsel, and innovators in the profession. When she's not writing, Deborah offers business strategy, communications, and marketing consulting services through her firm, Ferone Advisors. But before she opened her own shop, Deborah was the chief marketing officer of the law firms Cravath, Swain & Moore, and Debevoise & Plimpton two of the country's most successful law firms, and two powerhouses in the securities regulatory and enforcement space. She was also the founder of both firms' business development and communications departments. Prior to entering law firm marketing, Deborah worked at Towers Watson and Ketchum Communications and taught several courses at NYU in the area of marketing professional services. She is a past president of the Legal Marketing Association's New York chapter and has been honored with LMA's New York Legacy Award. She is a fellow in the College of Law Practice Management and an officer of the Law Management Committee of the International Bar Association. Deborah, wow. Thank you for joining us and welcome to Insecurities. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for having me um, along with the wonderful Stephanie Marone. I'm Sure, we're going to learn a lot from her about social media and how lawyers should and shouldn't use it. Speaking of Stephanie, Stephanie Marone helps law firms, individual lawyers, accounting firms, recruiting firms, business professionals, 
and other professional service companies of all sizes with brand building and revenue generating strategies and tactics in marketing, business development, and communications. Over her nearly 20-year legal marketing career, she has worked at and with a broad range of big law, mid-size, and small firms, which gives her a valuable perspective in the legal industry. Some of her past clients include many firms at the top of their practice fields, including names like Sullivan and Cromwell, Morrison Forster, and Mayor Brown, among others. She serves clients through her company, Stephanie Marone Consulting, and provides additional insight on her blog, The Social Media Butterfly, as well as writing with JD Supra and other outlets. Stephanie also gives back to the industry through several local, regional, and national legal marketing association volunteer roles. She served a two-year term as secretary of the LMA's Northeast region, and she was co-chair of the 2019 LMA Northeast Regional Conference. According to her recent posts on the social media butterfly, Stephanie is focused on educating her clients on worthwhile content marketing, the importance of staying in touch even while working remotely, and seeing Dave Matthews Band as many times as possible. Stephanie, welcome to Insecurities. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so glad to be here. This is such a great thing that you're doing. And Deborah and I have actually never partnered together. I've been a huge fan of Deborah's for many years. And you guys brought up that our last names rhyme. So thank you for that. We'll, we'll do our best to keep them straight as we work through uh, today's content. Deborah, you brought up the fact of social media, and we'll touch on that a few times throughout the the conversation today. But uh, you know, the interesting story related to Kurt and I is, for those of you who actually follow the podcast, might know that a chance Twitter encounter is is what brought Kurt and I together uh, a few years ago. Kurt, I don't know if you remember the uh, the specific conference I'm referencing. I do. I believe it was at the Securities Enforcement Forum in in Washington D.C., and uh, we stumbled on each other through the use of hashtags, which I'm sure uh, Stephanie is going to tell us how important it is to use hashtags. But uh, I, I remember it well, buddy. Yeah, I'd say stumbled upon is good. I remember there were probably about seventy tweets throughout that uh, single day um, event in which the hashtag was used. I'm pretty sure out of those 70, maybe 66 of them were from either you or I. So yeah. <laughs> uh, after running into each other at the networking event uh, in, in the evening, I know both of our, our firm colleagues that were also at the event were kind of ribbing us about using social media. Uh, and we instantly had some validation and pointing to, to the other guy across the table to say, yeah, but he's doing it too, uh, to really give uh, some credence to what we were doing. The fact that you guys used hashtags to me is so impressive. So the fact we even knew where to find them, what they are, and I just want to give you both a shout out and say, that's pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) A little background story on us, as well as how social media connected two people on opposite sides of the room, hundreds of people there. But, uh, you know, the fact that we were using the hashtag kind of brought us together. So we'll get into that as we uh, discuss more about business development and, and social media today. But that's enough about us. Uh, We're here to talk to our guests about the work that they do and how they view business development and marketing from a legal perspective as well as in general. Deborah, what issues do your clients bring to you and and how do you help them resolve those issues? Well, the main goal of all of my assignments is to help firms increase revenue. And that is usually done through really good strategic business development And social media, which Stephanie will talk about, is one of those tactics that can be really important in getting into people's perspective, your reputation, and what you're about. So my work really focuses on three buckets. The first is business development guidance, and that can take the form of a strategic plan for an entire firm or a large department, 
corporate, let's say, or litigation. Um, other times I get called in to work with really a number of practices. So there'll be a few practices that really need to up their game as far as business development and generate more for the firm. The second bucket is to help with the marketing department because very often folks in marketing can be incredibly qualified, but not necessarily the right match for what the firm wants or the firm doesn't know what it wants. So I'll work with realignment of a marketing department to make sure that they're able to execute on strategy. And then the third bucket is really the go-to-market strategy, You know how to help firms figure out how they're going to market themselves, how they're going to promote themselves, how they're going to train their lawyers. And something that I think you mentioned earlier is that marketing is kind of this business development tactic where people feel like, oh, I'm either not good at it or I'm good at it. And I disagree. I really think from the conversations I've had that marketing is a muscle and that with practice, people can get better. And it's something I write about in the book. Thanks for that summary, Deborah. I think it would be helpful also to hear a little bit about how Stephanie helps some of her clients. Now, Stephanie, I know a lot of what you do is is business to business or B2B um, companies and business professionals. You help them engage more effectively with current and potential clients, often through content development and social media. Tell us a little bit about how you help your clients develop and execute communication strategies in, in this new social media landscape. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been telling people for years to be using social media. And I think that a lot of firms, big and small and solo practitioners understood the value of it, but they sort of feel overwhelmed. I think with the pandemic, it's only become more important to use social media for a number of things. So you can use it for brand building, which is very important. And then elevating your position as a thought leader individually and also for your firm. And there's a lot of noise out there right now, especially. I'm seeing firms push out so much content. And I think there's going to be a point, if we haven't yet experienced it, where there's a saturation of content and a little bit, you know, clients are feel a little overwhelmed by what we have out there and all of the different emails they're getting and social posts. And so what I tell people a lot is to be very strategic about what they're saying and how they say it. I truly believe that social media is a business development and lead generation tool and that everything you do should support those missions. And so, you know, I tell people all the time, do not look at the number of likes, comments, and shares that you have on a post. It doesn't necessarily tell the full story. Focus on the content that really resonates with your clients. Be on the platforms that are important to them where they are. A lot of people will say, should we have Instagram? Do we need Facebook? Do we need, you know, all of these, do YouTube? And I say, do a few of them, do them really well. I also really believe that individual lawyers can really enhance their brands and their business by the way they interact on LinkedIn, which is where I find that most lawyers have a learning curve and they will set up a great profile and then they won't use it afterward. They don't share content, which is the most powerful way to engage with audiences and they're not sure what to say, or they are nervous, you know, about not having a high number of likes and that sort of thing. So my job is to counsel firms and lawyers in how to do those things, how to create posts for the future, 
what to be posting. And then like we said before, which I want to talk about later is the importance of using hashtags and the right hashtags to help your content become more discoverable. So it's all of those things together. And it's so important to have individuals who are engaged and feel comfortable in using these platforms because it's never been more important than right now to utilize social media for networking and thought leadership. Stephanie, it's it's great to know. It, it's good to hear. And I know personally, uh, I will take to heart the concept that I don't need to focus on the number of likes and and shares and retweets. Uh, sometimes I think it's a it's a rabbit hole that you can go down. But I, I know I at least personally really try to focus on on the content of the things that I post. It's good to hear from both of you about how I think you you're, you're sort of approaching a similar problem in terms of you know business development uh, from slightly different angles. And, and I think it's going to be awesome for us to have this conversation and, and learn the tips and techniques that, that you help your clients take to heart. But first, I think let's take a, a step back a little bit here. And Deborah, maybe you can kick us off by just telling us, you know, 30,000 feet, what does business development even mean to a law firm or an accounting firm? How should we think about that concept? Well, I like to think about marketing in terms of being an umbrella. And underneath that umbrella, you really have four parts. We used to call it the four Ps, but they're really four parts. So there's the promotion aspect of how you're going to get the word out about yourself or your firm. There's the pricing, how you're going to price yourself. And that has a lot to do with how you go to market, how you're perceived, how you get clients. Um, then there's the product, you know, what is the practice? And then there's the placement, you know, where are you located and how do you develop a niche? So all of those, those four things really go into marketing. It's the, the promotion, the pricing, the product and the placement and business development really oversees, I would say the promotion aspect and the pricing aspect, um, and really touches on all of these things. So BD can be you know, the tactics that come into play. So it can be your marketing communications, your website, your social media, your materials, anything that will warm the market to engage them with you and anything that will pull people into the firm. And then the other side of business development is the sales side, in a sense, the push, the partner going out to lunch with someone, the associate staying in touch with someone from law school, so there's kind of that push part and the pull part that really make up all the marketing. So that's kind of my 30,000 foot view looking, looking down at the different parts. Um, but the, the key, I think, with all of it is to be strategic. And there's some great tactics, especially with social media. But I think the, the main fall down that people have that is easily fixed is that they forget what their strategy is. You know, they forget what they're trying to say to the market. And instead, concentrate on going to the seminar or giving the speaking engagement. But I think it's really important to keep your strategy in mind so that you don't waste your time and you don't waste your money um, in what you're doing. Yeah, Deborah, I liked earlier when you spoke about some firms don't even know what their strategy is or have a strategy. So first, <laughs> you do need one right, in order to keep it in mind. Uh, it's a good, good reminder for everyone out there. 
you know, and a part of a lot of those strategies relate to what we kind of look at as traditional methods of business development, you know, how to write an article and get published in a scholarly um, journal or, or publication that's well read or, you know, performing kind of the, the live seminars or, or the virtual CLE or CPE presentations in the current environment we're in. Stephanie, you know, I know you work a little bit more on the individual side. Uh, how do you see those traditional elements play into maybe some of the more you know, exciting and, and, and new social media uh, focuses as well. Yeah, so I work with individuals, but also with firms. So there are a lot of firms that are, I want to say they're they're too small to hire someone internally to handle all their marketing. So they're, they've been outsourcing it. And I think this is going to continue to be a trend, especially during the next six months to a year as firms have been looking to cut internal expenditures. So it's funny because I, I usually I'd work for big firms, but I'm finding myself in the sweet spot of helping mid-sized firms and small firms. And um, it's been really rewarding and interesting to see. And it's, it's almost like you can really see the fruits of your labor make a difference. Whereas at a firm of 700 lawyers, it can be longer term to see the effects of what you're doing. And it's hard to really pinpoint what's, what's working. So in, in terms of thinking about the traditional methods, I mean, obviously having a strategy is important. Obviously being nimble to incorporate some new methods of communication and also new methods of engagement. So one of the things to think about is the fact that there are five generations in the workforce right now. And the baby boomer generation communicates very differently than the millennial generation. And so a lawyer in his 50s or 60s needs to adapt himself to the communication styles of his client and targets. And so the firms that are going to succeed are not necessarily the ones with the fancy names on the door. It's the ones that make their clients feel good about working with them. So it's why I say there's a huge opportunity for firms of all sizes right now before the pandemic, but especially right now. So client service should be at the heart of everything you do. You know, from from PR to your social media efforts to every event that you hold, but it always should be done with the client in mind. And I, I always say to my clients, really think about why you're doing this. And if you can't put yourselves in your client's shoes and really think about what this means for them, then stop doing it. And I'll give you a great example. Lots of firms are publishing their chambers rankings right now. I think it's not the right time to do that because it's too too much of patting yourself on the back in a time where the curve has not flattened in all areas. So I get concerned with the way it's written. And I tell them if you're going to do something that is self-promotional like that or announcing a big win that doesn't impact the world in which we live right now. What I mean by that is a, a firm had announced a big merger on which they worked. I think it could be seen as some by being tone deaf. And I say, really think about your client in the in this instance. And it's not business as usual. And we have to just throw everything we knew out the door. We have to address what's going on in the market, or you can seem tone deaf and you can seem out of touch. And that's so important right now. So I would say just look at everything you're doing from a big picture standpoint, but also what what things are you doing on a daily basis? And are you being client-centric? Are you being empathetic? And that goes to touches every area of marketing and business development. Yeah, I think that's a good kind of rundown of where we sit today. And 
One of the elements, Stephanie, you spoke to that really kind of rings true is that different styles of communications across generation. You know, some people see business development efforts in being a tweet or in responding to that text where some from an older generation, if you're not, you know, published in, in American Lawyer or, or on Law 360, then you're, you're not spending your time valuably. Can I just add one more thing to that? So I would say there's two kinds of, of media, right? There's third, there's what I call earned media and owned media. Earned media is getting the Wall Street Journal, getting published in the New York Law Journal, et cetera, which is terrific. And it does re- really great things for credentialing. And you should continue to do those traditional means of, of marketing. But owned media is a tool that many firms do not utilize as much. So that is the news they're creating about themselves. Whether you do a Q&A series on a certain practice leaders or you do a series on looking at different industries and practice groups, you can create news yourself to put yourself in the spotlight without seeming too self-promotional. So I think social media has given firms the ability to do that in a very interesting way. I'd agree with that. And one of kind of the other traditional methods, Deborah, I'm interested in your take on is that kind of boondoggle or, or, or large conference effort that a lot of firms will will put dollars behind and, and many attendees behind. Obviously, this summer, the, the conference landscape has changed dramatically. But I'm interested in kind of as we've moved from you know that generational conversation of what, what marketing and business development look like, how have the past few years of, of large regional or national conferences been seen from the clients that you work with? You know, most firms, even before um, we were hit with this pandemic, were concerned about, you know, budgeting. You know, every every smart firm is going to have a marketing budget and they're going to look at these expenditures and think, you know, are they worth our time and how do we measure them? So that was always a discussion. But I think what what smart firms have done and what I've worked with my clients to do is make sure that they're they're really trying to get a return on that investment. So if they're going to send two people to a program, you know, to either attend or to speak, you know, do the due diligence in advance, have marketing folks figure out who's going to be there, you know, get the list of attendees, run it through their CRM system, you know, their firm uh, customer relationship management system to be able to see who knows whom or who's a client who's going to be there really get an idea of that audience and set up meetings in advance of the program, you know, so that they know if they're flying to Florida, um, that they're really going to be meeting with people besides just attending the program. And then, you know, they're, they're doing other things. They're making sure that whenever possible that they get speaking engagements and that they're talking to the right people at the program. And afterwards they might write a summary, you know, for the firm, or they may end up, tweeting about it like you guys did during the program, which is a brilliant thing to do. So there are lots of surrounding things that firms can do to make sure that if they're spending the money on doing any kind of program, whether it's something they've created themselves, whether it's a a Zoom webinar um, or any other kind of event, that they're making sure that they're doing it in a smart way. You know, they're investing in advance and they're investing afterwards. And they're using the material that was created at the event, especially if it's something that they've put together. And they're, I call it remerchandising, but other people call it different things. I'm sure Stephanie probably has the right word for it. I call it remerchandising. You're basically taking that material that a partner created for speech and you're saying, okay, he spent or she spent six hours doing that. Now, what can we do with that speech? Can we turn it into an article? Can we tweet out parts of it? Can we tweet out quotes of it? Can we put something on LinkedIn? Can we send it as a white paper to clients? You know, And so 
I always feel like if you're going to spend that money, you want to look at a return on your investment. And so I think that has changed. And I think firms will be um, even more aware that they need to do that kind of look at their ROI on even the smallest types of programs. Deborah, that's always kind of a, at least from my limited understanding of, of marketing generally, that ROI is always very hard to to nail down. You know, it's it's never very clear, or at least in my experience, clear when you attend a conference and you give a speech, you know, there's not a client who runs up to you on the podium and says, hey, I want to hire you right now, right? So so how do you see firms kind of tracking those metrics? You talked a little bit about the re-merchandising, but in terms of the evaluation side of how that re-merchandising is performing, what are you seeing those, those firms and individuals uh, looking at? Well, I think if a firm has the right technology, they actually can look at key performance indicators. So they're able to see, first of all, where new business comes from. So that's something now that you can do with various um, pieces of AI and various pieces of technology that have become more affordable. So you can see, you know, if a client came to you, was that through an alumni connection? Well, maybe that means you need to do more alumni events. Did it come to you from a foreign firm that perhaps one of your lawyers got to know, you know, at a, at a past IBA meeting? And so you can track these things. And so you try to track as much as you can to see what tools are working. But selling a legal service is a complex buying process, right? So you're right. A lawyer generally doesn't say, okay, I heard this this person speak at a program. I'm going to hire him. But maybe they see the person's name later on in a magazine. And maybe they read about them in chambers. And then maybe their accountant mentions the lawyer's name. So it becomes part of this reputation. So marketing is really difficult to measure ROI, especially when, you know, you don't have kind of that direct, I've heard of you and now I'm going to engage you type of relationship, but really measuring those indicators and measuring the metrics that you can and really looking at the cost versus the results is is really an important thing to do. The other thing firms do, and I work with them on it's called a whiteboard exercise. And we often will look at clients and figure out which areas they're using us in. So maybe they're using you in trust and estates, but they're not using you in litigation, you know, and it's a mid-sized company that has litigation, or maybe it's a large pharma company and they're using you in corporate work, but they're not using you in litigation. By doing a whiteboard exercise, you are able to see what efforts are working and where it is paying off and where you're obtaining greater revenue. I think it's a, a fascinating look at how you can think about the ROI from a, from a business development standpoint. Uh, Stephanie, you've mentioned texting or engaging with clients and contacts on LinkedIn as, as sort of uh, new communications avenues. So I'd love to hear you expand on that. Can you tell us a little bit about how social media has changed either the perceptions or the objectives of business development, let's say for the past five or, or 10 years? Yeah, absolutely. So in in the last five years, I, I really want to focus on LinkedIn, although I will say that Twitter and Facebook are very important. And for some firms, I'm seeing Facebook be even more important than LinkedIn. But for purposes of this conversation, I feel like LinkedIn is the most important pl- social platform on which lawyers should be and should be focused on thinking of their network and how they can maximize it. So I find that 
So I call there's three building blocks to LinkedIn. One is your profile. And so making sure you have a really good profile is very important. I see lawyers that have multiple profiles from a secretary who set it up years ago to the, maybe they were at a, a defunct firm and then they opened up a new one. It's really important to complete all of the sections, use keywords in your profile, have a very strong headline because that gets pulled into Google and into LinkedIn search results. You want to fill out the sections that talk about what you do, your summary, and use keywords that describe your practice because, again, this will help with search engine optimization. The other thing, the other two sections are your connections. So this is the number of first-degree connections you have, and I find that there are so many questions with regard to that, and I know that most lawyers can build their networks. Again, it's not about the quantity of your connections. It's about the quality of your connections. But I know that every lawyer out there knows more than 500 people. So I've been giving the lawyers with whom I work homework to increase their LinkedIn connections by 25% um, or 10%. And again, set a goal that is achievable for you by joining alumni groups on LinkedIn, by looking at your former law firms at which you worked. And then number three is the interaction with, and their participation on LinkedIn. Most lawyers fall flat in this area, whether it's because they're nervous about like commenting or sharing, whether it's because they're worried that their content will not get those numbers. And again, I want to stress the importance of not necessarily looking at your engagement. Statistics are very important to see what does well and what does not, but it doesn't tell the full story because as we all know, lots of people look at content on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, but they don't necessarily interact with it. It's what I call the invisible user trend. In terms of what's the most powerful, sharing is the most powerful because it it raises the likelihood that your content will be seen by those in your feed. What most firms and lawyers don't realize is that if if a firm should have 2,000 company connections and the lawyer has 1,500 LinkedIn connections individually and another colleague of his has 1,800, There isn't necessarily a lot of overlap between the two. So that's why it's so important that if your company shares a a piece of content, you know, a blog post, an event, whatever it is, that your lawyers feel comfortable sharing it to their network so that you amplify the reach of the content. And then the last thing I'll say is the lowest hanging fruit on LinkedIn is the notification section where I have seen new business come from time and time again, particularly over the last two years. So this is the section, guys, that tells you about somebody uh, switched jobs or somebody has been at a company for 10 years and celebrating their anniversary. Those are great catalysts to reach out to someone to say, hey, Jim, I can't believe you've been there for 10 years. Time flies. Hope you're doing well. That is an opener and a catalyst for reigniting relationships and the conversation. So I highly encourage you to look at that information and to act on it because it can lead to renewed relationships and new business. I think those are very helpful tips, Stephanie. And I, I like the focus on sort of the, the quality of the, the content or engagement, the quality of the connections that you can build through some of these new social media tools and LinkedIn in particular. I mean, I think that concept maybe goes hand in hand with the old adage that it's not what you know, it's it's who you know. And all of this is really just sort of new age 
networking in a sense. So I'd like to get your thoughts on, I mean, how valuable is networking still? And um, how, how do you look at networking or, or professional networks through a business development lens? Okay, so a couple things on that, right? Um, with the advent of social media, we've been able to build our brands in a much stronger way, amplifying ourselves in other ge- geographic regions and meeting people online that you wouldn't necessarily come in contact with every day. A great example would be would be you guys, right? It's social media brought you guys together. There are people who I feel I know very well through social media. However, I've never actually met them in person. So that's a testament to the power of social media. I continue to get new clients based on the content I write and the posts that I put on social media. And I, I'm not alone in that. Lawyers are the same way. I've seen them get new business from this. But there's also a level of education and sophistication that needs to go along with how you use social channels, right? That could either be very strong, you know, help your brand or hurt your brand. In terms of using LinkedIn for business development, I'll say a couple of things. One is every piece of content that you or your firm pushes out is an opportunity for a conversation with someone else. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a blog post or a podcast or a video that you wrote. It could be something that you think would be of interest to your connections. And your connections are not necessarily going to always be in your core practice. So think about something that may resonate with someone else as a way to just stay top of mind. The key with social media is to stay top of mind with touch points and with helpful, useful content. Let's drill down a little bit on practice areas that are particularly relevant to our listeners, as there may be unique business development considerations or strategies for these particular practices. Stephanie, how do you see the unique challenges of being a securities law attorney or a securities enforcement consultant when it comes to business development? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, obviously with litigation, there are certain things that you can't discuss with any matter. And so it can be difficult to promote that practice. But I would say that there's always touch points during a particular matter to which you can point to victories or where you can look to other cases and discuss those and the implications of those. So, you know, I would say there's several things I would recommend. Being a writer right now is very important. It's, you know, there are a lot of publications looking for contributed content. So it's easy to get yourself published. I also think to the extent that you can do things that are a little different than writing, podcasts, videos, they resonate very well. I would give a little more weight to podcasts, not just because we're on one, but because people listen to podcasts when they're driving, when they're working out, and it's just a great way to reach people. I say always different strokes for different folks. Some of us, the written word is more powerful than the spoken word, but I don't necessarily, you know, I think it just depends on with whom you're trying to reach. And I I think, you know, thinking about your target audience with everything you do is very important. So I mentioned those, the age, the ages of folks and thinking about how to reach people. A lot of your decision makers are now in their thirties. The way in which they communicate, I can't stress this enough, is very different than than someone who's a baby boomer. Um, I would also say that while the courts may be quiet right now, there are a lot of clients looking to lawyers, securities lawyers, litigators, every type of lawyer for counsel on what this means for them and what's going to happen in the future. So to the extent that you can write about what the post-COVID-19 world looks like or how their area of law or what their business will be shaped by this, do it. There are 
I say every firm has these nuggets, which I call evergreen posts. For securities litigation, it could be something, what do you do when you get a subpoena? Something as basic as that. You'd be surprised how many people actually Google these terms. So also making sure you use the right keywords in the article that you create is important. And I'll tell you guys, I worked with a lateral at one of my past firms to do something we'd never done before, which was to buy Google AdWords for the securities litigation area. So it was, you know, SEC enforcement. It was government fraud. We buy whatever it was, a few words. You can set a budget with Google and a monthly budget, and it can be a great lead generator. So he got new business from this. But the, the key is that whatever you link to, you pay per click, and it has to be content of value. So I think it's just an interesting way to think about new business coming from different avenues that weren't necessarily traditional. So do the traditional, but also think outside of the box. Thanks, Stephanie. I, th- I think it's interesting to hear about some of the the newer techniques that are available or tools that are available. You know, whether it's the the Google AdWords or some of these other applications that that you mentioned. I think it's interesting too. I mean, you you mentioned that some potential topics that may be very well received in the market are things talking about what is the post COVID world going to to look like. I think we're going to talk a little bit later about some of the business development opportunities that there may be uh, d- during the pandemic or in the aftermath. But tell me a little bit about sort of getting the the balance right between continuing to focus on you know, posting about, you know, for example, my securities investigations and enforcement practice versus focusing on content that really is related to the pandemic? This is a great question. So I think empathy has to be at the heart of everything you do and putting yourself in your client's shoes. It's simply not business as usual anymore with everything. So I mentioned the pitch materials that I'm redoing for another firm. You know, we're taking a look at even the content on their About Us page. We're reflecting current market conditions. So I would say that you really need to think about what it is that you're writing about and if it's important or not. And I think just, you know, again, consider your clients. I can't stress enough the importance of client-centric content. I think it is important. You know, I work with an IP firm and there have been major decisions that have been passed down, you know, in different circuits. And if it's impactful to your clients, write about it. We, I did another post recently for a firm that was celebrating its anniversary. And we did a Zoom happy hour. And we said in the post, we understand that this is very challenging. These are very challenging times for many people. However, we were very happy to have something to celebrate, even if we can't be together. And it was just, it's the way in which you write something. I always, with every post I've been writing lately, I try to ground it in what's going on. I My last line of every post is stay well, be safe, because you simply don't know who is impacted by this, who has a family member or a friend who's dealing with this. People are stressed out. They're dealing with their kids at home 24-7. It's a lot. So I think you have to strike the right balance. I also don't believe that we should only be focused on COVID-19 related th- things either. So again, in the securities litigation area and litigation as you know as a whole, I would say if there's something important going on that would be of interest to your clients, write about it, but be very sensitive to the way in which you communicate the information. Another interesting nuance to securities law and enforcement issues is client relationships. Oftentimes, the issues that those companies or individuals are facing from a securities perspective are one-time events or or ad hoc issues that come up based on a regulator reaching out to them or a lawsuit being filed. Practitioners may not be able to cultivate a long-term relationship with those key company leaders, 
because frankly, they don't want to face securities violations or potential violations on a regular basis. Deborah, how do you view client relationships in, in that element of the security space specifically? Well, I think what firms are considering right now is where the opportunities might might lie. And for securities litigation, you know, the the litigators that I've talked to have talked about, you know, possible growth areas, um, class action lawsuits, for instance. I think there are going to be disclosure violations. There are probably going to be product liability suits. There will be suits regarding stock drops. So I think. We're going to see more work bubble up, um, but the question is, are firms positioning themselves and writing about these, these kinds of things in order to get their name out there? Or are they talking to clients about how to proactively avoid these things by you know, reviewing the SEC's latest guidance? And I think that's very important right now to know where those opportunities are so that you can build those relationships. And there are industries you know, so I kind of call this the double bump. You know, the first wave is we're going to see the class action suits, we're going to see the the various violations, but then down the road, what industries are going to be, you know, ripe for litigation? Which industries are going to be ripe for growth? You know, who's going to need a compliance program? And so you kind of look at that as almost a secondary market. But firms are, I think, if they're thinking about business development relationships in a in a very focused way they're going to be strategic about looking at how they've developed business in the past so where businesses come from there are lots of different ways that business comes through and i've heard it um, mentioned by litigators that you know they're kind of envious of their corporate brethren who are often dealing with companies that have let's say they're doing serial acquisitions so you might represent a large company over time and it could be a relationship that goes on for years and years, and you're doing multiple deals. And I know it's not the same way with litigation. So those relationships are just so important. And this is one of those times, Stephanie also had mentioned this, where you have a great excuse to be in touch with your clients and your past clients and your hopefully prospects down the road. And I try to get litigators to pick up the phone anytime um, to contact their clients, particularly during those um, in- interstices where they're not litigating, you know, particularly during those break times, to let them know that they're thinking of them, um, to send them an article that they find of interest, to just check in on them and see how they're doing. And so this is a great time to do it. A couple of words about relationships. I think relationships are so key and it is the people you know but also the people who know of you so reputation really does matter you know i i've often talked to staff folks in marketing departments and i said everything and i've said everything that you do is helping to create your reputation so it's how you treat your colleagues how you treat those people who report to you how you treat the partners and their clients. So all of those things are reputation building. And it's also important to remember that diverse networks are key. So you don't want to just know the general counsel or the in-house counsel who's in charge of litigation. I think it's important to know various people in various industries and have a wide and diverse network. Now, it seems like common sense, but very often with lawyers, they're used to dealing with other lawyers um, in particular industries. So the more you can widen your network, the more you can stay in touch with various people, it will help develop more business. 
Very well said and and absolutely true, whether you're in-house or at a firm. So much of what we've talked to, about today has touched on or sort of danced around the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that is a testament to just how truly disruptive the pandemic has been for law firms and for lawyers, um, both in terms of doing their day-to-day job and in terms of maintaining uh, relationships, maintaining a network and trying to you know, market a firm or a practice and develop business. A lot of that is because so many traditional business development or networking opportunities, things like handshakes and in-person meetings, they're, they're temporarily out the window or maybe out the window forever. Deborah, tell us a little bit about how work from home is changing things for your clients or maybe how some things are staying the same. I think a lot of the basics are the same. You know, the things that they should have been doing before, um, they should still be doing. They should be in touch with their clients on a regular basis. They should be thinking about what's on their clients' minds and addressing those issues you know, it's less about selling what you have to sell and more about listening to what the client needs and being very empathetic and figuring out, you know, what tools you can provide your client. Um, so I do see my clients are obviously thinking about how they're going to do events in the future. They're doing more webinars. They're getting more sophisticated in webinars. And I've been helping a number of people really hone those skills. So I think, you know, there is a skill to doing a Zoom webinar in the right way, the way someone presents their PowerPoints, their messaging, um, how they follow up with clients after the webinar. So things like that are changing. Um, What I hope firms will do more of, and it's not necessarily because I, I do some of this, it's really just, I think, common sense is that I think they should be really um, investing in training their lawyers, both their partners and their associates in business development and really coach them because this is a time that's really proven that everyone on the team needs to be strong. It's not enough to say, you know, the past people would say we have minders, finders and grinders. We have different lawyers who do different things, but I think everyone needs to be good at client relationships. And even if they're not a, a, a king size rainmaker, I think it's important for them to be able to really be able to connect with their clients on a deep level and be comfortable developing business. It's good to know that there continue to be a, a lot of opportunities out there. And we've talked quite a lot about some of the things that folks should be doing right now, even if that's just maybe a, a new spin on some things that you already were doing or should have already been doing. I want to flip the question around a little bit, though, Deborah. Um, I, you know, I wonder if there are areas or if there are things that you think maybe law firms or individuals are doing that are missing the mark, or or maybe coming off as a little bit tone deaf. Are are we seeing too many sky is falling client alerts? Are there lessons we should have learned from the Great Recession of two thousand eight? How do you think that lawyers and law firms are doing right now? I, I think they have learned since 2008, 2009. I think they are better at communicating to the outside world. Um, but having said that, I think there are some oversights. I mean, we have seen too many memos on COVID coming out from law firms. In fact, there was a there there was a whole discussion on Twitter that was started by the brilliant Kat Moon, who's a professor at Vanderbilt Law, pointing out that she's heard from GCs that they're just overwhelmed with all these memos. 
And so I think it's a reminder to firms that they need to really focus in on when they're communicating in mass and they're preparing these memos that they intend to go to multiple people, regardless of if it's 10 or or a thousand, they really need to think, is this appropriate? Is this really going to be helpful for this individual? Or am I just sending it to them because they're on a mailing list? So it should have to do with their practice area. It should have to do with their industry. So I do think there's been an overwhelming amount of of these memos that go out. Um, I also think that there are firms that I've read are cutting back on innovation which I think is a, a big mistake. And I'm, I'm very interested, especially to hear what some of the leaders like Oric and Latham and Kirkland end up doing. I don't think they're going to be short-sighted about it. I think this is the time where we need to be innovating and we need to be responding to clients. And there was already concern in the marketplace, and rightfully so, that GC's offices were were a lot smarter about legal operations, and they were using alternative legal providers to do a lot of the work. Um, and there are studies that show that that was the growth area, not necessarily paying law firms any more dollars. So with all that in mind, I think technology and innovation is so vital right now. And that can end up being a huge differentiator in which firms succeed and which ones don't. So it'll be interesting to watch. So, I mean, I, I can definitely uh, tell you from my own experience, there has been a noticeable shift to some of these alternative uh, legal service providers that that you mentioned, uh, and it's changed the landscape a little bit. So, I, I mean, I think with that context and, and having talked about sort of where we are today, you know, Deborah, we mentioned up top that, that you wrote a book called Law Firm Business Development and Marketing. It's published by PLI. It came out just last year, which is pretty recent. But even so, if you were going to to take another look at that today, or if you were going to write it today, is there a topic or, or a chapter that you would add in to sort of reflect where the market is now? Surprisingly, I would not change much. Um, I've been thinking about that lately. And you know, the things that were pressing a year ago are even more pressing now. So, um, you know, and the things that we're lacking in firms, I think, are just more obvious now. There's a Warren Buffett quote that only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked. And I keep on thinking of that quote because, you know, now that times are really tough, you can see who doesn't have the technology in place and clients can tell. And you can see the firms that have not trained their associates. and. That definitely shows. You can tell the firms that don't have good control over their social media because that's very obvious. And so we're seeing kind of the weaknesses and the technology and training systems that are not there um, because of this. But I think the the points that I was making in the book, especially in my last chapter, when I go into detail on a few firms and give some case studies, are that firms need to concentrate on you know, Im- improving and constantly accelerating their ability to change to not only meet clients' needs today, but think about what they are tomorrow. And they also need to double down on a few key practice areas. You can't be everything to everyone. And that's even more obvious today. I think then that's a, a, 
a perfect plug for all of our listeners to go out and, and get a copy of the book as soon as they can. And also a, a fantastic uh, segue, perhaps. I, I don't think you know this, Deborah, but you've hit on a joke between Chris and I about that Warren Buffett adage. Uh, I shared with him a while ago that my, my earliest mentor in a law firm uh, around the time of the Great Recession once told me that uh, when the tide goes out, that's when you could see where all the bodies were buried, which is obviously a misquote <laughs> that maybe doesn't make any sense. So here we are again. It's like instead of Reg BI this week, we're back to <laughs> we're back to. Yeah, the you had to say it. Up. I knew you'd get it in somehow, Kurt, <laughs> with the Reg BI. Mixing metaphors, it just makes it more memorable. <laughs> exactly right. So anyway, maybe that's a good way to uh, to segue into uh, the lighter segment, which we like to try to put at the end of our episodes. Chris? Yeah, as discussed uh, at the beginning of the episode, Kurt and I think we're pretty social media savvy. Not only did we meet who would become a future podcast co-host uh, through Twitter, uh, we still use those tools on a regular basis for business development, uh, you know, client awareness, sharing, and, and linking to articles of note. Um, we've actually asked uh, ahead of time, Deborah and Stephanie, to do a cursory review of our social media content uh, uh, and hopefully give us some constructive criticism and, uh, and, and tips for improvement. Oh, I think we should start with, with you, Kurt. Of course. <laughs> How, how's Kurt doing online, guys? So with Kurt, I would start thinking about what the purpose is of, your, of all of your social media. You know, what is it that you want to accomplish? Do you want to be known as an academically smart person? Do you want to be known as a connector? Do you want to be known as a heavy-duty thinker? So I think that's really important to decide, and then everything should fall from that strategy. Your Twitter did not use a lot of hashtags, and I, I saw that immediately. And I think that that would be really helpful, not only in helping you gain more followers, but just in general, attracting more eyes on things. So I think that that would make sense. I also think you guys could do a better job of promoting your podcast. <laughs> Truth hurts. Agree. Kurt's Twitter. I I see. You know, it it tells me that there's an episode going on, or or that was was taped, and who was on it. But it doesn't tell me what the episode answers, or what it does, or what it's going to do for me as a listener. Is it everything I ever wanted to know about? You know, business development for securities law. Or is it everything I need to know about changes in FCPA? Like, I think you need to get those messages across on Twitter or across in how you guys promote the program. And then also, see, this is fun for us. We don't, you know. <laughs> it's fun, program. fun for me too. <laughs> so this is, this is fun. But um, the most recent feature item, you know, they have a new feature where you can post at least three things. So you can have three features up there and that you could really take advantage of. And you want to make sure that those features have a catchy headline and good text. Um, <laughs> you know, once you develop um, kind of a look and feel for the podcast, I would also consider using Instagram because a lot of folks end up going on Instagram and find it's useful for looking at podcasts. And I know it seems like a lot of work, but it's really not. It's super easy. You could create a very easy template on something called Canva, and you could have a quote from each program and just have it posted on Instagram. It would be really simple. And if you look at the Masters of Scale um, Instagram feed, that's a great web 
um, podcast and they do a great job of just putting quotes up and it attracts people and then it links back so that um, they end up getting more subscribers to their podcast. All right. Um, that's great feedback. Thank you. Uh, you know, a little a little painful to do it live on the air here. No, your social media is great. I think it's wonderful that you're even on it and you're doing the things that you're doing. So I would just want to take that nine to a 10 on a scale of one to 10. <laughs> well, thank, thanks for solving. I haven't even gone blow. yet. So I have some thoughts for you guys. <laughs> hey, Man, Stephanie, I, was, it, it, I just want to dish to Chris. When is it I was going to say, turn? in terms of fairness, maybe uh, <laughs> maybe you let me know how if I'm a nine and should be a ten, or if the numbers might be a little different for me. Yeah, and I've got okay. So I've got a couple thoughts for Kurt, and then I'll go to Chris. Chris, I got some fun ones for you. So Kurt, you didn't uh, take your your friendly URL. So your your name, if you notice at the end, I'm, I'm talking about LinkedIn, when you go to the end of your profile, it says Kurt Wolf 501B536. And so what you want to do is go into the top of your profile and change it to the custom friendly URL so that you can just capture your name. If you're, oh, if Kurt Wolf is taken, you may have to put in your middle initial or the word or like ESQ at the end you have. So it looks like you have about 1100 connections and about almost 1200 and Chris has 3,200. Again, it's not the quantity, it's the quality, but I have a feeling you could get that number up and the more, the more connections you have, the, um, the more amplification you'll have with your posts. Okay. Chris, are you ready? No, I think you just covered it. Uh, that's great. Thank you for tuning <laughs> oh, no, in to this. No, 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 no. <laughs> Hang on. No, no, no. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Chris, here we go. First off, Okay, I like where you're going with your header image. However, can we, we can do better than a calculator, okay? You are more than a calculator. So I, I would say if we can get a picture of either of you, and like, by the way, your firms may have LinkedIn cover images that you want to mm -hmm. use, um, but you can also do one for the, you can make a custom one. Like Deborah said, she talked about Canva for Instagram. You could make a custom LinkedIn image as well that promotes what you do as for your business and the podcast. So that I would go there. Chris, my biggest criticism for you is the your title, your name. So it says Chris, and then it says CPA, CFF, CFE, CGMA, MAFF. That's a lot. Do we have to have all of those? You ask a great question, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> It just seems a little overwhelming, and I don't know what those things are, but I know what CPA is. I know what CFE is, but I'm guessing other people know. I think you did a great job with your featured section, Chris, and I think that's terrific. You both have all of your positions in from prior jobs, it looks like, in here. So make sure you, you join the alumni groups of any of these organizations if they should have one, and that you both join the alumni groups of your educational institutions. I would say brevity is good, but the keywords are good. Length isn't necessarily the most important thing. So you, you know, you want to think about that. And I would say both, just both of you guys, you could be sharing news about the podcast more on LinkedIn. And don't forget what you do on a daily basis. I would say, you know, want to strike the right balance between the podcast and your actual work. I can almost hear Kurt and I furiously typing to update our profiles before this episode goes live. <laughs> I, I thought they were both very good. I mean, Chris, I have very few comments. Um, I thought you used the feature piece on LinkedIn very well. I mean, that is a new kind of um, tool that they have, but it's nice to see the way you have three items, which is which is perfect. I thought with your tweets, 
occasionally it looks like you're tweeting like three or four times a day. And I, I know that that's a good way to get more followers, but I think I would probably cut it down to just once a day and try, you know, experimenting with different times of the day. Uh, I think that could, that could help. And again, also hashtags. The, the one takeaway from our discussion today is more hashtagging. Uh, we should have known, Kurt, right? The fact that we got together based on a hashtag. Uh, right. We should be doing a little bit more of that. Yeah, and using the right hashtags too. You know, so it's so one of the things I want to say is that LinkedIn will give you suggestions for hashtags based on the content that you write. They aren't necessarily the correct hashtags to use. So they base it on the content, not the number of followers. So the best way to test a hashtag is to actually type in the pound sign and the word and see how many followers it has. And so I'd recommend you do that and then just save those in a you know a word document so you can cut and paste, but each each post should have unique hashtags that you use. I would encourage you not to make up your own and to just do a little research for maximum engagement and maximum amplification. All right, Chris, it sounds like we've got some homework, buddy. That's right. <laughs> it's going to be a long, long weekend, uh, maybe with a cocktail to make sure we're getting this thing right. So excellent. Well, thank you everybody for joining us today for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our, our two guests today, Deborah Ferrone and, and Stephanie Marone. You know, great to have you guys on. We like to give you both a chance to, to talk about uh, you know, how, how our listeners can find you. Deborah, how can our listeners engage with you through social media or other avenues? The best thing to do is to send me a note on LinkedIn. And that's just good advice in general that you don't want to just send someone an invitation. You want to include in the note portion how you know them or how you want to know that person. So um, I think connecting with me on LinkedIn and it's just Deborah Ferrone on LinkedIn. I also do have a Twitter feed and it would be great to um, follow me on Twitter at Deborah Ferrone. And lastly, you can go to the PLI website or you can go to Amazon if that's easier for you. And you can buy my book. It's Best Practices in Business Development and Law Firm Marketing. All right. And Stephanie, why don't you tell the people where they can find you on the web? Yeah. So similarly, I would say LinkedIn is a great way to find me. So it's just, you know, my last, my first and last name, it's Stephanie with an F. And I post a lot of content on my LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter, Stephanie Marone, again, with the F, not the PH. That's another Stephanie. And I have a blog. It's the Social Media Butterfly. And you can also find me writing quite a bit on JD Supra. So it's just JD Supra and Stephanie Brown. But if you Google me, you'll find me. Fantastic. As always, we want to hear from you, our listeners, regarding your thoughts, comments, and potential topics for future discussions on episodes of Insecurities. Please use, with the full encouragement of our two guests today, the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join our conversation. As always, you can find me at Ekimoff CPA. And I am at Enforce underscore update. Be well, everyone, and we look forward to talking to you next time. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. 
For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Sanders, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. CLE and CPE credit are not offered for listening to this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without prior written permission from PLI. PLI.